there! Welcome to another Breakthrough Research Podcast episode. My name is Marjorie. I'm a senior lecturer in Ethical Artificial Intelligence at Sheffield Halle University, and I'll be hosting today's episode. The Breakthrough Research Podcast is supported by the Industry and Innovation Research Institute at Sheffield Halle University, and we are going to give you an insight into the work that we do. On our lunch, in the morning or evening, we want to be there on your break. Screams down and tune in to learn so much more about not the only new and exciting research that we do, but also the journeys behind the researchers themselves. Today, we have with us Dr. Danielle Miles. She is the I2RI, that's the the Industry and Innovation Research Institute. She is the Research Institute Innovation Manager. So, so she will tell us all about that. We are making the recordings by digital platforms with simple equipment that we have available. The episode that you are listening to now was recorded on the 27th of June, 2022. Hello, Danielle. Hello, good afternoon. Great to be here. Excellent. So let's start. Could you tell our audience a little bit about, about what your role is? Because we, I think at, up to this point, we only had, you know, um, what you would call traditional academic researchers, but you are a manager. So can you tell us a bit more about your role? Sure, no problem. I'll try my best to describe it succinctly because it's quite a multifaceted role. But effectively, I'm the innovation manager for the Industry and Innovation Research Institute. And I actually joined Sheffield Hallam University back in September last year. So I still sometimes feel fairly new, but also sort of feel like I'm, I'm part, starting to feel like part of the furniture a little bit. Um, but I, I work alongside the Institute management team with Jane, Andy and Amanda, but I also link centrally with research innovation services under Alex Prince um, with a team of innovation managers which are based out across all the research institutes and also there are two specialist innovation managers in the specialist strategic centres. So what, what is an innovation manager and what, what do I do I guess is the question. So from my job description, <laughs> um, I'm here to provide leadership and direction for innovation and knowledge exchange activity across the Research Institute. So really that involves working directly to support and secure high quality, high impact knowledge exchange activities. So that's when we work with external partners um, and leading and driving collaborative partnerships and consortiums. So really it's all about that people relationship, getting the best out of our academics, working with the outside world and trying to get their research out there. So it's all about supporting and developing the interest of our academic colleagues to help them to grow their income to the university and impact as part of the sort of leading applied ambitions of the university. Fantastic. You mentioned knowledge exchange. I don't know if our, our audience will be familiar with that. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So it's really interesting you asked that. I was actually at a conference the other week, um, which was called Praxis Oral, which is a, a conference for knowledge exchange professionals across the whole of the UK. And there was a lot of debate around a definition for what is knowledge exchange? How do we define ourselves? What does it mean we're doing? And um, I think knowledge exchange really is, is more about an, it's an activity. It's a way of getting research and science, which is traditionally done in universities, out into the real world. But it's not, it's exchange. It's about two-way knowledge. It's about us getting the knowledge we have in a university out into the real world so it can be applied but also using knowledge that sits in the real world to inform our research our teaching our learning so it's about supporting that activity to do that and it could be through multiple different ways of doing things so collaborative 
relationships and projects with industry to secondments backwards and forwards um, lots of different activities that basically help to get the flow of information and research in different directions so I guess that would make, you know, the work we do inside the university not staying inside. So it's making sure that we are contributing to society in, in all the ways that we can, not only um, training the students to, you know, do the specific uh, jobs, but also making sure that what we do as from a research side is useful. It's not just, you know, us having fun behind the, the walls of the university. Right. So... You said that you started back in September. What made you want to apply for this role? Um, I guess maybe it's useful to talk a little bit about what I was doing before this role. So um, I've actually got over 10 years of experience working in the higher education sector. I started off as a researcher myself, did a PhD, um, started my PhD in 2008, graduated in 2012, which is scarily 10 years ago, which only feels like yesterday. I realized that the other day that it's been 10 years since my PhD, which is, which is scary. Um, and then I moved on to, to postdocing for a while as well. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that journey and why I transitioned from being a researcher into an innovation manager, uh, maybe, maybe in a little bit. But prior to this role, um, I was a technology innovation manager um, working at the University of Leeds in the medical technologies innovation team, which I started back in 2016. I joined that team working on Translate MedTech, which was a, um, a government funded program, which involved a partnership of five lead city region universities, which was really about kind of building capacity and capability in MedTech innovation within the region. So um, that was quite an exciting time for me because it meant I got to work with, with a multitude of different universities and, and try and get academics to, to innovate in the, in the medical technologies field which i which i had a passion and still do have a have a passion for um and on that program i was providing sector specific expertise and support um to help academics pursue sort of key projects and areas of interest but i also spent a lot of time developing and embedding training and development programs to try and upskill our, our researchers and and also a secondment program to try and help sort of get them out in the real world and get the real world into them as well which is really exciting um, after the Translate MedTech program, um, I stayed as a technology innovation manager, but I also became a program lead for a program called Grow MedTech, which was a Research England Connecting Capability funded program, so another government funded program, um, which was a partnership of six Yorkshire region, uh, six Yorkshire region universities, um, and this time including Sheffield Hallam University. So that was where I really got to know Sheffield Hallam, I guess. Um, on Grow MedTech, I was responsible for the day-to-day -day leadership and management of the program, bringing together a team of specialist technology innovation managers that were based in each of the six partner universities, trying to get them to work collectively as a consortium. Um, and, and really, again, it was all about accelerating and de-risking medical technologies um, with academics, industry and clinicians. And I guess what led me to this role at Sheffield Hallam, I guess one of the, as one of the partners on Grow MedTech, I was really able to see firsthand how Sheffield Hallam is committed to really working on applied research and, and knowledge exchange. And there was a real collaborative environment. I felt like everyone was really supportive. There was ambition there. 
and I think I was just attracted to the role when I saw it advertised actually on LinkedIn um I wasn't actually actually actively looking for a job but when I saw the job description I was like hmm this ticks a lot of my boxes I feel like I could do that and I think it was that it was it sounded like it was quite a dynamic role um, there was a restructuring within the university they were trying a new a new way of doing research and innovation and it I really thought it'd be nice to try and be part of something that was new and, and changing culture a little bit. And I guess I really felt that my experience and also enthusiasm, I guess, and of, of sort of supporting research translation and getting it out there into the real world and also how much I enjoy sort of connecting people and external partners with academics. I just sort of felt that this role would, would tick a lot of those boxes. So that's kind of, I guess, what, what led me to where I am now. Wow, what what an, an amazing career so far. Uh, you mentioned that you did a PhD. Can you tell us a bit more about what is your PhD about? Sure. So um, my PhD was on self-assembling peptides for biomedical applications. So peptides, if you're not sure, are sort of small proteins. Um, and we would we basically designed these in a way that they would self-assemble. So by that, I mean, they would, um, because of the building blocks that we built them with in certain conditions, they would stack up and form higher ordered structures that would change from a liquid to a gel or a solid or different, have different sort of properties of a material. So we would tweak the design characteristics of these peptides to have different material properties for the resultant materials. So I was really looking at, my PhD was really about taking a really interdisciplinary approach and a scientific discovery in chemistry. So that was understanding the basic principles of these peptides, what would make them behave the way that we wanted them to and give the right properties and translating it into a potentially beneficial tool for, for biomedical engineering. Um, and just to sort of, I guess, build upon what, what my, my PhD was about exactly. So it was the, the the question that we were looking at was whether or not we could come up with a treatment for interfertebral disc degeneration. So some of you who've listened to the podcast before might be familiar with Christine Lemaitre's work and what she's done on the disc degeneration and the hydrogels that she uses. So my PhD was, was along those same lines. And actually I read a lot of Christine's papers when I was doing a PhD and, and met her at conferences and her PhD students at the time. So really, I guess we were all working with the same question, how do we cure back pain? Um, and that's because intervertebral disc degeneration, which are the soft tissue between your vertebra and your spine. As you age, they degenerate, um, and that's one of the most common causes of, of lower back pain. Um, so they believe that, well, this degeneration is primarily caused by a breakdown of, of molecules called glycosaminoglycans, which are long polymers that sit in, in, in the disc and that attract in water, um, which gives it the biomechanical properties. So I was looking at developing a, um, a sort of hybrid gel with these self-assembling peptides and the glycosaminoglycans so that they would mimic the natural properties of the disc and we were designing them in such a way that they could be injected in as a liquid they'd form a gel in situ and as i say had the same mechanical and and swelling properties of the natural disc so the idea being that the biomechanics would be restored wow amazing do you get a chance to do research in your current role because you are a manager so you are trying to pull all those different stakeholders, this, this, those different people, they, are, they should be interested in, in collaborating. But do you get a chance to do research as well? Um, not so much. I mean, I'm still, I've still actually got a, a visiting uh, research fellow position at the University of Leeds, um, mainly because the um, academic who was the sort of head of the peptide group at Leeds um, left Leeds a few years ago. So sort of my 
intrinsic group knowledge is quite important to some of the research that's still going on on right now and sort of being able to advise on some of the sort of legacy of the peptides and where they've come from and, and the design principles of them um, so my name does still pop out on the odd paper every now and again so I am still involved in some some instances but I guess at my in terms of my role at, at Sheffield Hallam University I'm not directly involved in research but actually I think as I was doing my PhD in postdoc although I still found the science fascinating, I think it was more about how it was applied and the kind of commercial route of it and the market opportunities and all that side of things was starting to interest me a lot more. And I think I was getting a lot more, I guess, enjoyment out of that side of things and that kind of connecting things together. As a, as a postdoc, I was really heavily involved in chairing research groups and connecting some of our other PhD students with clinicians and organizing visits to, cl to clinical practice and all sorts of things. And it was that, again, it was that kind of people side of things, that connecting people up, that seeing the opportunities and how you can make things happen that I realized not only that I enjoyed, but I felt like I had a bit of a knack for. So I think that's what was driving me towards it. And I think one of the great things about my job now is that I think as you pursue an academic career, it's not always the case, but you become more and more sort of narrow and focused on a very specific thing and you become the most knowledgeable person on the world on a very, very small thing. Whereas in the job that I've got now, I can be a sort of expert generalist. So I get to see all sorts of research. Um, I still rely quite heavily on my science undergrad and my PhD training. Um, you know, I need to understand a lot of the science and the engineering and pick up new principles fairly quickly when I'm having conversations with the academics that I work with. But I get to dabble in lots of different areas of research now and sort of can still steer it and inform it and have I feel like I can still have an input in it um, but for me now it's about having that input and adding value in terms of how does it have impact in the real world which I think probably excites me more than than going down the path of just sort of becoming very very focused on one area. Uh, yeah I, I, well this just only shows that when you do a PhD you acquire skills that will be valuable in any other career that you decide to take that's it's just as true as you know if you want to be an academic right you mentioned that working with you know all those different people um, you can make sure that well you can try to make sure that whatever knowledge is being produced can be used for benefit of society can you tell us a bit of what kind of challenges do you face trying to, you know, be this person in between all those different groups of people, you know, from industry, academics, the population. So how, how do you find it? Do you find it easy? And if not, what are the main challenges? I don't know. I don't know if I find it easy. Um... I think I'm getting better at it. <laughs> Obviously, that's what I get paid to do, so hopefully I can do it. Um, but I think I think some of the challenges are, especially when you're working with many different stakeholders and different groups, it's understanding the different drivers, what motivates them, what's on their agenda, what are they doing, what language do they speak? And I think that's one of the things that I've learned over my previous roles. And actually, even going back as far as my PhD, as I say, I was a chemist, but I was working really closely with biomedical engineers and biologists and actually even just being in group meetings, interdisciplinary group meetings, it's really useful to know how to communicate what you do in your science to other people that don't understand all the acronyms you use and all the technical jargon that you're familiar with. And actually, I think learning how to talk to people about what they want to hear 
what matters to them why do they care about what you're saying I think is a really important skill to have and I think that's what I try and bring to this role now is actually sort of being that language translator between the different parties in terms of what do they want to hear what do they want to hear and how do I match the two together really so I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges between working with different groups making sure everybody's speaking the same language and understands um, each other and what they're trying to get out of a partnership and managing expectations which is which is not easy to do <laughs> um, it takes some doing and I don't always get it right but um, yeah it's something I'm striving for I'm sure you do an amazing job because uh, uh, looking at your CV, well, you have the proof to show, isn't it? Uh, let's now look back at Danielle when she was a child. So tell us, tell our audience, what made you decide to study science? That's an interesting question. I, I don't know if I can remember one singular thing. I think I was always that kid that, I mean, I, I know lots of kids do this, but always asking the questions. I always wanted to know why, why is this? How does this, why does this? I always had a very inquisitive mind. So I think that probably naturally led me down a, down a science path. And I remember as a, as a child, um, one of the things that we did as a, as a family, we went on holiday to Tenerife. A few times and I remember I must have been sort of five or six it's probably one of my earliest memories being absolutely fascinated by Mount Tady which is a volcano that makes up the the bulk of the island and I became obsessed with volcanoes and understanding the geology and how all of that works and I don't know if it was coming from a bit of a fear <laughs> and a worry that it was going to erupt and kill us all or whether it was just it was sort of a weird morbid fascination but that then led me down to sort of yeah understanding more about geology and how the earth works and and then I guess took me down the science path in terms of why I went down the chemistry route um a little bit of probably was affected by my A-level teacher. I was toying with geology. He told me not to go into geology because there was no money in it, which I think was probably the worst bit of advice I've ever been given. But anyway, here we are. Um, he, he advised me to, uh, to, to, to have a look at chemistry um, because he, he basically felt that it was a, a central science in terms of when you do chemistry, you not only do chemistry, you do a little bit of physics, a little bit of math, a little bit of biology, um, and you, it, it doesn't narrow your options down too much. You can, I could still do geology as I got later. I could be a geochemist. I could, lots of different avenues. And actually, although I don't necessarily agree with some of the advice he gave me, I think chemistry was probably the right path for me in terms of it didn't narrow down my options. It kept things really open for me. So I didn't have to make decisions too early on in my career. Well, teachers, if you are listening, don't 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 say a career path doesn't make you money. Please make sure that you you give the proper advice. Right? We all know, unfortunately, that you know being a woman in science might be challenging sometimes. So, uh, can you tell us uh, a bit more about you know your personal experiences in being a woman, a very strong woman, a very confident woman? I'm sure our audience will agree, but. Do you, did you find yourself, you know, facing misogyny or, you know, discrimination because of your gender at some point in your career? I think I've been quite lucky in that I've had a lot of very strong female role models. Um, both of my PhD supervisors were women. Um, my postdoc supervisor was a woman. Um, and that's always been really great is to have to see other women sort of striving the path ahead of me and I think I've been very fortunate from that side of things but it is something I've always been aware of um, and I think one of the things that I still suffer from this day if I'm completely open and honest is imposter syndrome 
And I don't think that's just something that women have, but I think it does affect a lot of women. Um, and I think the kind of gender side of things, I think, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate. I've been invited to be on quite a few panels. I've been invited to go on lots of quite high delegation visits to different different countries on sort of trade missions and on looking at innovation ecosystems and I've been very fortunate with some of the opportunities I've been given but every now and then I do question whether I've been given it because I deserve it or because like they needed a woman on the trip <laughs> which is I don't know if that's imposter syndrome kicking in or what's happening but I always just try and spin it around in my head and say it doesn't really matter the reason because either reason is just as justified actually it's really good there's a woman on that trip and if that woman is me that's fine I'll do my best to represent and that's kind of how I how I've dealt with it um I think I've only ever had one really misogynistic comment on on one such trip um somebody made a comment that you know it's always good to have a, a nice looking girl with us which you know is in some ways a weird compliment but also really upsetting when I was there to present my PhD and my science and my academic credentials and that's being thrown at you it's it's difficult but that's that's one example that i could think of and i have to rack rack the brains to pull that out but most most of the time people have been really supportive lucky you yeah no but I, i'm glad you 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 um had a fewer experience than most but yeah it's it can be it can be very challenging right we are moving towards the end of our chat so i hope you are enjoying it as much as i am can you tell us, Danielle, what do you do when you are not working? Quite easy. I ride my horse. That's what I do. That is my entire life, pretty much. Um, yeah, I have a horse. She's called Holly. Um, I compete fairly low level with her, but it's the main thing I do with her is just particularly when I've had a long day at work or if I'm feeling stressed about anything, whether that's in life or whatever, it's nothing better than to go to the stables, throw on my tack and go for a nice hack out in the woods and just enjoy being out in nature with my horse plodding along in the sunshine. It's nothing better. Wow. When, when did that love start? Did you always like horses since, since, since you were a child? Yes. Um, again, I was quite, quite fortunate as a child. I, my mum's my always been horsey and we had pony lessons and things as a kid so horses have always been part of my life and I made a, a fateful decision in the first year of my PhD I decided to buy my first ever horse um, which might have been the best and worst decision of my life in terms of it was a, a massive financial and time commitment that's now forms a big part of my life but also it, it created me the headspace and I genuinely think that's what got me through my PhD actually at times. Fantastic. Wow. Well done you. That is you. You are making sure that your mental uh, health is being looked after as much as, it, as you know, your work. So well done. Right. Um, if you have someone listening that might be interested in, in the topic of your PhD or might want to know more about, you know, the work you do in knowledge exchange or maybe as a company and wants to, you know, do a partnership with Sheffield. Hallam, what would you, what, what are the options? So how they can find you and what are the option or, or the options there for, for, for them to collaborate with us? Um, so you can contact me via email, which I'm happy to share. It's danielle.miles.ac.uk. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. You can pretty much get me on any social media platform. Um, if you're a company and wanting to work with us, then feel free to reach out. I'd be really interested to understand what your innovation needs are and how we might be able to match you to our academic base. Um, if you're a PhD student or somebody that's thinking about what you want to do for your career, um, I'd be more than happy to have a chat. Um, I guess in terms of 
one thing I would say to you is don't just think about research or working in industry. It's possible to do both and it's possible to work at that kind of bridging interface. Um, and in terms of, I'd probably also say to them, seek as many experiences as you, as you can. Um, try before you buy, volunteer. Being at a university is a fantastic place for training and development opportunities. There are loads of opportunities that get sent around through emails and roundup and newsletters. Just sign up for everything. Sign up for everything would be my advice. Try it all. Get the experience. You never know where, where it'll be useful. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we hope you enjoyed our break time podcast. Thank you, Danielle, for joining us. No problem. It's great to be here. See you next time where we will be meeting with another of our researchers. So screams down and tune in. You won't want to miss it. Goodbye. <laughs>